Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Life Coach Pod. It is our last day of a live show, which I know will make absolutely no difference to you whatsoever because you get this on recording. So yay you. But I have two super fans that I'm going to thank at the end who have showed up for every live show. So I'm very, very happy about that. I, I feel special. Also, we have a great guest today who um, I met through my wanderings and he's awesome and I cannot wait to hear what he's going to talk about. We're going to dive into that in just a second, but you know I have to start with an update on the Turpensteins because they're still going strong. It is day nine. We are beginning to see the emergence of the feathers and I have to say over time, this guy, this guy who has just been hanging out and doing so well He's still my number one attitude chick. Like if there was ever a Chirpenstein, it is, he is the trope for the Chirpensteins. They are eating a ton and they are growing like weeds. And I suspect over the weekend we could be, we're really day wise getting day, day nine. They usually fledge between day 12 and day 19. So it really depends on if they're not interested in pursuing their careers or really don't want to go earn their own money, how long they'll end up staying in the nest. So we'll, we're going to talk now pretty soon about their drive and ambition because I'm sure it's, it's low. And it, but there's five of them in the nest, so some of them might be highly motivated to get the hell out. Um, those are the arrows, just so you can see the five. It's, their translucence is going away. There's still a little bit right here where you can see their throats and stuff, but their translucence is going away. So anyway, let's get on with the show. Today is the art of storytelling with Jeff Meyer, who has a, um, quite a bit of storytelling experience in different ways, which is what I'm really interested in learning about because I think we don't really realize how many places stories are being told. For those of you keeping track, it's time to say rabbit, rabbit, because we have a new day of the month. It is, and I know there's a longer rhythm thing to that. Jeff, you don't know it, do you? It's rabbit, rabbit, something, something. I, yeah, it's supposed to bring you luck at this point. We all could use some luck. So go ahead, say it, rabbit, rabbit. It is also, May, so it's May 1st, but it's also March 62nd for everybody staying in sheltering in place. Uh, we have upcoming guests on Monday. I'll be talking to you about emotional intelligence because it's super important right now. In fact, you're going to start to see two worlds, those who have it and succeed and those who don't and look like giant asshats. So really important to be paying attention to emotional intelligence. We'll have Julie Leonard here talking about reclaiming happiness and that's not supposed to sound trite. That's actually something that you can do and it's important and nobody's happy all the time, but you should know what happiness is and you should know how to be able to manage your life in a way that you can achieve it. And then we'll have a show for Cinco de Mayo. It is not gonna be a drinking show. It is, I'm hoping the guest I get will actually be telling us some hard truths about migrant families and what it's like to be Latino in California. So I'm hoping I'm going to get that um, guest in place. But today, to warm the room on the art of storytelling, I pulled up a couple graphics. This one talks about just how much content we absorb in our brains all the time and why storytelling is so important as a way to connect that content to meaning and to memory and all those other things. We have 100,000 digital words consumed by the average U.S. citizen every day. 100,000 words. And if you're only reading Twitter, half of that's just garbage. So think about that. 
92% of consumers want brands to make ads feel like a story. We know this. I love crying at the Johnson & Johnson commercials about the new babies. Or Kodak used to get us good. God, that's probably one of the saddest things about Kodak not being a mainstream brand anymore is that they used to produce some of the best commercials right up there with Hallmark. Oh, those, they just could tear you apart. And then our brain is 60 times faster, the rate at which the brain is processing images compared to words. So we work faster on images, which remember we've heard the saying, a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, our brain actually uh, processes pictures faster. So if that is then true, if, there, if we're if exposed to so many words, it's important to keep it short and to grab readers' attention. So that's a test. If you're finding you're getting lost in something, somebody's bad, done a bad job of telling the story, right? Because it's too many words. It's like me talking. And then you can deliver content that's linear. So the idea is that there's a clear narrative. Digital world is great for people who have brains that are really, really bouncy. But most humans need a through line. And Jeff's going to talk about that. Like, you've got to tell the story with a through line. And then, of course, pictures really do help tell the story. And if you can't show a picture, you can certainly paint a picture with words. That's some of the best storytelling. It's interesting that there's this idea of how storytelling can affect the brain. So I'm going to um, kind of read these because it's, it's super interesting to me, the science of storytelling, and that's what's happening here. There's something called neural coupling, and that's when the story activates part of the brain that allows you, the listener, to turn the story into your own ideas and experience. I'm not saying that's what Brian Williams did, but maybe it was. Maybe he neural coupled. <laughs> Um, there's mirroring where the listeners not only experience the same brain activities to each other, but also to the speaker. So that, oh my God, that's some of the best. You know, you're having a good storytelling when you're like right there with them. You just are connect, super connecting. You also get dopamine from listening to a good story when you're listening to an emotionally charged event. And it's easier to remember when that dopamine kicks in. So I hear stories of people who fall in love if they do something that um, also causes dopamine at the same time because you just connect. You can do that with storytelling. And then, of course, there's cortex activity where your brain is activated and a well-told story can engage many additional areas. So sometimes I used to, this was important to me in marketing. My boss didn't understand when you tell a story, you need to actually activate all the senses. A lot of people don't just learn or through hearing, they have to have the other things activated. So you tell someone how it tasted, or you explain the soft wind against a cheek, or you um, tactile hearing taste, anything. You talk about the, the taste of that ice cream as it melts into your mouth and goes back into the back of your throat. All of those things can help um, make your story stick, and it's a really good experience for the person on the other end. So I'm not going to read this third infographic, but if you've never gone to look at it and you're in any way a storyteller, and I mean for your kids, for your work, wherever you go, Pixar has a reputation of being the best storytellers. And they and I had the opportunity once to go to a Pixar um, premiere at Pixar to see Monsters uh, University. And in walking through their building, they really celebrate story. They put up their storyboards for their story around the building and you could see they try to bake it down to just a few elements and that's essentially what's here in this infographic and just google the pixar 22 rules that's what you want to know and it, i'm not saying you have to follow all the rules or anything but it'll stimulate your ideas and give you ways to think about story and mom i know it says 
Number seven says the one thing I've never done, come up with the ending of your story before you write the middle because the endings are the hardest, which is why I have six unfinished manuscripts because the ending is the hardest. So this is where we, we start here with story. We're bringing in Jeff. I'm gonna, Jeff, come on in. I'm so excited you're gonna be here and, and tell us about the artist storytelling from all your perspectives. And I'd love to have you introduce yourself. Sure, my name is uh, Jeffrey Meyer. I am a member of the Writers Guild of America. I am a professional speech writer. Um, I do professional marketing and public relations, and I come from the world of politics. And so that was my orientation into storytelling, really for the first time um, in a professional standpoint, but I grew up on a Sicilian family. And so you want to talk about characters and stories it's literally right at the thanksgiving uh day table and so you learn a lot uh when you're exposed to a lot and you learn about these larger than life characters some may be related to you some may not be related to you and it leaves an imprint on you it leaves an imprint on your mind of wow this is what compelling storytelling is like and there's something that i can take from this and later down the road in my life repurpose it I and love so, just the picture of you sitting at that table with food. And I mean, there's such yes. a, it's such a trope. It makes me a little jealous because you know, we didn't have that. Um, we usually had yelling, but yeah, just this whole idea of the stories and the happiness and everything. I, yeah. And, and listen, Sicilians are a different breed of Italians. I mean, we don't even say we're Italian. We say we're Sicilian because that is a special sect within the world of Italy and its history. And we are a proud people who are very passionate and our passion tends to lead to high levels of volume when at family gatherings. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. So, so you grew up in this family where I imagine it's folklore and history and that one about Uncle Sal and all that kind of thing. And then you decide you're going to do political speeches? Well, you, nope. If anybody who tells you that they started off in politics and political speech writing would be telling you a lie because it doesn't work that way. You literally have to work your way from the bottom up. I literally started sweeping floors and cleaning toilets at the Democratic headquarters when I was in college, to being able to be part of a canvas and go door to door with a script and hand out literature to voters, to overseeing a canvas, to putting up poll signs on Route 17 and Route 4 in Bergen County, to running campaigns, like running large multi-million dollar campaigns. And through that way, someone identified my ability to write um, and to quickly develop a message and to communicate that message. And then I was given an opportunity where I was recruited to work for the Speaker of the House of New Jersey, and I became a senior staff member and his speechwriter. And so that okay, was so, my beginning. So we see Andrew Como come out every day, and he says words, and people think these are just magic, but that's not magic, right? Somebody's working really hard behind the scenes to pull together a whole lot of information. So he sounds breezy and at ease. So, so Cuomo is like, he's Sicilian, and it's like <laughs> watching a Sicilian relative of mine sit at the head of the table and say, this is the way things are going to go, guys. That's basically what Cuomo's doing. He's coming out every day. 
And in very clear, easy to digest terms, he's saying, here's where we're at, okay? Here's where we've been, and here's where we're going. It's very simple, routine, scripted storytelling, okay? He's saying, we have a beginning, we have a middle, and we have an end. And you may not like what I'm telling you about each phase, but it's what I'm telling you. So I learned how to write a speech when I was in college and I took a public speaking class, never thinking that I would learn the formula for writing speeches, but I just thought I would learn to give a speech, okay? You see, you can't give a speech if you can't write a speech. And that writing can be anything from an outline to bullets to a fully scripted line by line written speech, right? So my college professor, uh, Mr. Bauman, taught me that there is a formula to speech writing. And he said, if you can get this formula, if you can understand it, if you can digest it, and if you can implement it, you'll be successful in speech writing and in giving speeches. And I said, okay. He said, here's the formula. Are you ready? I'm like, I'm ready. He's like, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them what you told them. I was like, that's it. There's no like, he's like, yes, Jeff, that's it. It's about consistency and reinforcement. I've used that formula to write speeches for lawmakers, mayors of large cities, members of Congress, um, the former speaker of the house who's now a member of Congress. Uh, and it's worked and it's worked because it's the simplicity of the framework that helps people get the message because you're delivering the message in a way that's easy to digest, that's easy to understand. A lot of elected officials that I've worked for have said things to me like, they'll mark up a speech or an outline or talking point and say, oh, we need to use more highbrow language. I'm like, do you realize that the average voter is reading below the New York Times eighth grade and higher reading level? So why would we want to complicate this message if it's not going to a very, very small sampling of the population, if it's going to the masses, right? If you're giving a speech in front of a few hundred people and not a very specific trade group or trade association or a lobbying group, right? And so sometimes you ha we have to train politicians and candidates and elected officials on how they need to communicate. Um, and that in itself is... Uh, is a task. Is a task. I see when you said you get notes, and I'm like, no, that means somebody got the red pen out yeah. and started marking up your document, which any of us who've ever been edited, it's painful because depending on who your client is, in this case, you had politicians who even feel more frightening to me than CEOs, um, right. who really have this idea of grandeur in their mind, and they think that your words are what's going to distinguish them instead of no it's really telling a good i mean andrew cuomo is such a good example of good storytelling right now and it never gets too complicated right and if you watch the new york media they try to take him to a place where he doesn't want to go so what does he do he repeats what he said earlier so what he's doing he's going oh you think it's green Outside, I still think it's sunny and beautiful. So I'm just going to remind you, like I said earlier, it's sunny and beautiful out. 
That's all he's doing. He's going back to the original message and reinforcing it. And when they try to get super hyper-specific, what does he do in those press conferences? He reaches out to one of his cabinet members and he says, can you handle this? Because he wants the message coming from him to be at the 10,000 foot level. He wants his, he wants his cabinet members and his staff to get granular, but he wants to stay at that 10,000 foot level. It's such a good juxtaposition because I think when you talked about, there's a, there's a thing you can use in word that I don't think people really know about called a flesh reading test within the flesh test essentially is a really fast way to tell how highbrow your writing is. If you're writing for somebody who can read at an eighth grade level, what are they? Fourth grade level used to be the newspaper standard, right? You had to really be able to be. The times is eighth grade. Eighth grade is for the times. So, and the thing is, is that I know I was freaking out at first because everybody kept saying asymptomatic and I'm like, people don't know what that means. They don't know what that means. They're hearing symptomatic. They don't know what, like a space, symptomatic, not without symptoms. And that, to me, for storytelling, a big part of it is to use language that's accessible so people can remember it. Unless you're reading a story you really want to, and you go Google asymptomatic, but most people, to your point, need you to keep it simple. Keep it simple. Tell me what to do, or tell me how to enjoy this, but don't make me work too hard. Well, go back, go back to what you said about Cuomo, right? Cuomo does something that I have a lot of my clients do when I'm writing for them, and it's called, well, what does that mean? Okay, it's when you say a term that's clearly technical in nature, whether it's an acronym, okay, or if it's medical based or science based, okay, or just nitty gritty policy based. Cuomo will say, well, what does that mean? And he will qualify what that means. And so the best communicators do that because what it does is it's both humbling to them. It shows them to be humble, right? But it also creates that connection with that person on the other side of that screen right? It creates that connection of like, oh, Andrew Cuomo is one of us. He's an everyman. Like he knows that not everybody knows what these terms are. And yeah. because of where he came from, he's going to let us know what those terms mean. So when you're writing for politicians, you have to be really clear. And I know it's, there's a lot of ego management as the writer you're doing to manage that ego. Because you, you juxtapose that Cuomo versus, I'm going to say Trump, and I just mean the juxtaposition is that there you see the speeches aren't clear, aren't, there isn't a story. Honestly, the the big deal is, the big difference to me is there's not a story in a Trump briefing. He comes out and reads a bunch of stuff that somebody's put, they feel like he's reading PowerPoint slides, and you're supposed to remember and know what he's talking about, and he jumps all over the place, and there's no story to it. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes it hard for us to trust because there's not, there hasn't been a thread. I'm interested in your analysis. I think, I, I think the reason why that is is because we are putting Trump in the political bucket and we should really be putting him in the performance art bucket because <sighs> that's what those are. And so we're, we're, analysis, we're, we're, we're giving him a level of analysis through a lens that doesn't fit. Okay, we're looking at him as a traditional politician or president and presidential. And we expect from him what we've expected from the previous presidents. And so we're looking at it the wrong way. Nice. Okay. That's not the standard by which we need to measure him by. We need to measure him as a performance artist. Okay. And as long as you understand that that performance is tied to his own vanity 
and his own ego, then everything else will make sense from there. But if you think that that performance is tied toward policy goals or tied toward uh, helping Americans or being aspirational about the future of America, then you're looking at it the wrong way. That is such a good distinction because I wanted to kind of take turn it a little bit and talk about when you're writing for something creative. So that's kind of how we're starting to make this movement, right? So you started out writing for things where you needed to deliver clear, concrete messages so people could trust the person you were working for and believe that they would do what they say and that what they were saying mattered. But then you've gone on to do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're part of the Writers Guild of America, which is a big deal because you have to, what's the standard you have to meet to be in the WGA? You have to be So in order to become a WGA member, you would have had it gotten hired from a signatory on a project um, and have been able to produce uh, written scripts that have been um, either purchased or verified by the guild at a certain level. And so I was brought on a show um, and given an opportunity to become part of the guild. And how is that kind of writing? Congratulations, by the way, because that is actually a big deal. Um, uh, how is that kind of writing different? So it's, it's, and this is going to sound cliche, it's both different and it's the same. Okay. When I work for candidates or when I work for office holders um, and they have a big speech to give, I will sit down with them and say, okay, what do we want to say? What do we want to accomplish in this speech? And then we will outline the speech. Okay. They'll agree on the outline and then I'll go back to them with the draft. Okay. Most speeches are typically that I write are almost in bullet format, okay? Because nobody wants to read off of a piece of paper because that inspires, that excites no one, okay? And it's flat. So what I do is I write like a bulleted version of a speech, which is almost like a high-end outline, and they work off of that, okay? And within it, it'll have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it'll follow the formula that I laid out for you um, earlier. When you write a script, now I want to just say this. There's a lot of people who work in the creative space and everybody has their own ways and their own ideas for writing. Some people position themselves as so-called experts and that's great. And some people try to market and sell their services because they're so-called experts. That's fine. Um, But I will tell you this, there is no monopoly on creativity. There is no monopoly on great characters, and there is no monopoly on great storytelling. So I tell you that with my own experiences, and I'm not telling you that I'm an expert, but I'm telling you I know enough to be dangerous with the written word. This is coming from a Sicilian who is in its genes, and he's telling you there's no, yes, Yes. okay. (laughs) So I'll tell you what my process is, okay? And everybody has a different process. Some people just get on their MacBook and start writing a script. And that's what they can do. I don't do that. I start with characters, okay? Everything begins with characters. Characters are your vehicles to not only show, but to tell, okay? So I will build out my characters and each character will have within it, you know, their own character archetype. One character will be a hero. One character will be the mentor. One character will be the shapeshifter, you know, the, the wild card. You know, one character will be um, like an ally or a trickster. And so there'll be different characters, right? 
but those characters are all fit in a mold to tell a story, right? So first part is I developed characters. Second part is I developed story. And the third part is I developed the world. And I write that in a treatment. And so that becomes the foundation for everything that I write. Okay. Did you, did you happen to watch the Parks and Rec thing last night? No. It's so interesting. It just, the reason it came to mind is that they did it all remote, but it was so clear the first thing they had was the characters. Because basically they could have had the characters, as long as they stayed in character, everything, it seemed so easy to me how they would have written, how they produced this half an hour show. Because they brought, just to your point, they brought the characters what would the characters do during quarantine? What, how would they react? What would be their little foibles and their weaknesses and everything? Yeah. And, and it just was such a good example of where it was character driven. And then you put them in their world of Pawnee and then you, you know, you, you do all those. Yeah. Things. I mean, it's, I think that um, everyone wants to try to develop characters that are complicated and layered and um, um, wrapped in all this self-conflict, right? All this conflict. But you have to keep in mind that when you do that, it has to work with the story. Like you can't create this character that is so many different things at once that it doesn't even fit in the story or in the world, you know? Like when you create that psychological profile, of your character and who they are, but more importantly, what they want, it's got to make sense given the story in the world they're in. You know what I mean? And so I got into this business because a friend of mine, a good fraternity brother is an actor in LA and he was having problems with a project that he was on a play. And he said, it's a political thing. Can you give me some advice on how to handle this little thing? And I gave him some advice. And then he said, oh, tell me a story. I told him a story. He's like, Jeff, you got so many stories. Don't you? I was like, yeah. He's like, you should, write a, you, should write a, you should write a script. You should write something. And he's like, first, why don't you write a treatment? So I wrote a treatment. I sent it to him. He gave me his notes back. I rewrote the treatment. I rewrote the treatment like six times. Oh, okay. That's important. Let's just hit that for a minute. Guys, six times. Editing your own work sucks. Yeah. That's, no matter that's, how inspired you are. That's actually six times of rewriting a treatment is like almost on the low end, right? Right. Like I have I mean, friends who have written their treatment, rewritten it like 10, 12 times, right? And the reason why is because you're constantly retooling, retooling, and try to set yourself up to do the best job at delivering the characters in the story, right? Those, yeah. those are the two hardest pieces, right? World is much more easy to develop. Okay. And then within the world, you'll have a tone. Right. And so within like, I'll give you an example within the world of the wire, right. It was a gritty urban Baltimore about how the drug game was playing a larger role in the city than anybody outside the city truly knew. And within the drug game, people were winning and people were losing. And here are those people. It's not hard. This is wow. like, when you take it to that level, you understand it, right? And so every project has characters who have stakes and everybody's stakes are at different levels. And what you want to do is you want to show those stakes over a series and you want to continue to ramp those stakes up, particularly on serialized television. And the changes that you've seen on episodic television is now 
the episodic TV today is both episodic and will have an arc over the season, right? We'll have yes. a singular arc. If and they, so, yeah, if the I people, feel like yeah. I was going to say if they if they're doing a yeah. good job, but maybe it only means now because of uh, because we all binge. I mean, well, it's not it's not just that. It's because the golden age of television has changed how writers and producers deliver television. The public wants and is demanding more. And if you don't get more, you don't get eyeballs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's what producers. And so I think if you look at what's being done with the Chicago PD, Chicago fire, Chicago med series, if you were to juxtapose that to the early days of law and order, you would see that the writing and the storytelling today is far more complex in its nature, even though the executive producer is the same person and he knows that, you know? And so as writers, you know, we, we pay attention to that, but you know, many times people who are, you know, who aren't writers don't realize that sometimes one word, one scene, one page, is pivoted on one word and that one word will change the direction of what happens in that scene okay and it was because a writer sat in a room and said i'm going to build this scene around this one word they circle the one word and they write three things out from the word ready they write character they write story and they write world which is the writing equivalent of who what and where where so that's what they're doing okay that's a very simple writing exercise that you can do that can help you draw out i don't like believe in all these like story grids people get into the story grids like i don't i don't like to write that way i don't think that i don't think that fosters creativity i don't think it leads to fully developed characters and fully developed story and it's very mechanical to me, you know, when you just follow these boxes and they tell you, oh, you should be at this point of the story and this is what should happen, you know, in, um, you know, act one, you know, I just don't, I just don't believe in that. I believe that. Actually, that's sometimes, sometimes some of the hardest TV to watch is like, ugh, I know that Law and Order was a perfect example in the old days that had the pattern. You knew the pattern. You knew when it was time to go to the bathroom. You knew Very formulaic. what was going to happen yep. when you came back, right? And the biggest moment was, are they going to find them guilty? Because usually, yes. But sometimes there was that crazy twist, you know? Yeah, it became very predictable. And so... See, I think, I think Dick Wolf, I think Dick Wolf knew that. And yeah. I think that's why he's been so self-conscious about the way he's written um, Chicago Fire and Chicago PD and Chicago Med. Those shows are so well executed. And every week you'll be, con- you'll be consistently surprised at what happens. You know, they yeah. throw something in that catches you off guard. Like, wow, I can't believe that just happened. And that's such great writing, you know. And then, and then he uses the social media tricks of like interweaving characters across the three so that you can't, yeah. I do not care for Chicago Med. But if I don't pay attention to it, I'm right. going to lose out on what's happening right. over at the yeah. fire department and on, on law later. Like, yeah, PD or whatever. I'm going to miss it. So he kind of sucked me in I, I have to play because that's to me that is good storytelling like no i gotta have to know what's happening with my characters the, the the thing i will say to anybody who's listening who wants to write a script or wants to tell a story is that 
this is going to sound really basic, but it's that writers write. Like you've got to spend some friends who screenwriters but write forms like will sit and write a thousand words every day and that's great so my friends who are screenwriters will sit and write five six seven eight pages a day okay i don't necessarily write five six seven eight pages a day i may but i write and i i write for a few hours and i write in a way that i feel will be the most productive when i know that me sitting down in front of that screen and getting on final draft I'm in the right head place to write and develop my, my, my page. And so understand that there's like no pro forma way that you have to write, but in order to be a writer, you got to write, you know, it could be writing down things that come to your head in your notepad. I keep a little notepad next to my bed. Sometimes middle of the night I come up with something, I'll write it down, but you have to write because when you're writing, you're flexing your muscle. Okay. Mm -hmm you're getting stronger, okay? You're gonna become a better writer because writing is all about on the job learning, okay? And as long as you understand that, and if you're committed to your craft, you're gonna put the time in to, to read and to learn and to write. And the best thing I happened to me early on as a writer was, was failing. I had a project that was going through the process at the CW Network, I felt really good about it. Um, it was loosely based off my life. And then the CW network were like, Jeff, we, we love this project, but we're changing our marketing standards. And we're going from being the Beverly Hills 90210 Melrose Place reboot network to now being in the DC Marvel world. And we're pushing, you know, shows like Arrow and, and, and Superwoman and others and shows like Gossip Girl were coming off the air. And so I got caught up in that cycle that year. Um, but you, you know, you learn from that and you take your, your written work and you, that script got me to other places and got me hired to write a hip hop script and, you know, and that's created other opportunities for me. And so what I would say is if you want to be a writer, take your craft seriously and work at it, put the time in and just don't wake up every day saying, I got to sell this, wake up every day saying, I got to make this the best I can make it. Yeah. So when I get my meeting at a network or if I get my meeting with a producer who has a deal, it's going to be tight. The pitch is going to be tight, which is a whole other thing. The script is going to be tight. Everything's going to be tight. And I know what my show is about. The worst thing that can happen to you is not knowing what your show is about. Yes. Because when you get in the room and they tell you, tell me what your show's about. And if you don't know what it's about, it's going to be crickets in that meeting. And it's so, going to be a very short meeting. Stepping to my last big question, because this is one, okay, I'm extroverted and, and I'm a collaborator. That doesn't mean I want to write with someone because I don't think that would work very well. But I unfortunately sometimes like to get feedback, but then I feel like sometimes people are full of crap. So how do you deal with collaboration? What is that? Who do you trust or how do you trust that part of, the process do you use it so i've i've had a writing partner for for the first few of my projects um i collaborate well listen in this business everybody says oh let me read your script i want to give you notes okay yeah. the question is who is the person that's giving you notes like i've gotten notes on my scripts from managers and from agents and from producers that were all very good notes 
I've also gotten notes from some of my friends that are in the business that are not writers that are just not worth anything. And so, you know, when you give out your project for somebody else to read, you got to protect it like it's your baby. Okay. You got to understand that this is a business where people are constantly repurposing other individuals creative. Okay. So if you're going to have someone read your script and give you notes, notes that you know that can improve your actual story and your script, you better make sure it's the right person. You know, um, there are a lot of good people in this business. There are a lot of bad people in this business and people who will take your work and sell it in a different way and completely take advantage of the situation. So it's really important to protect your work. That's actually some super great feedback because I think when you feel new or a novice or you're excited about your idea, but you just want to see if anybody else gets excited about it, you let down your guard. And then if it really is a good idea, you can lose it. And I think that anybody who's getting started, you know, you can buy books on how to write a treatment. I would recommend that because it's a great guide for what you need to do to write a treatment. And a treatment should, should basically have, you know, the standard is sort of these four things, right? It's got to have the character development in it. It's got to have the story for the series, okay, and the pilot. It's got to have the world developed, and it has to have the tone of the show. Huh, yeah. That's that is the that's sort of the industry standard. Now, every agency will say, "Here's the model that we like to use for a treatment." Right? Every management company that manages lit has lit managers will say, Oh, this is what we use for pitching or this is what we use for treatment. So it's, everything's going to be different. But again, like I said earlier, it kind of becomes the rush back, right? It's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. The people who are cr truly creative and are committed to their project are going to work their way through that. Oh yeah. And that's what I've done myself. That's, that's really interesting, and I think it might be a good exercise if somebody wants to see if they're really getting it, is to deconstruct something that they're watching today. Go ahead, try to right. just deconstruct it, right? About, go ahead and summarize the characters, and get the story, and get the location, and figure out what's happening there, and see if you can actually pull it apart yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I think that um, the way the TV is done today, everybody's constantly trying to figure out, okay, who in this show is actually the hero? Is this person the hero? Is this person the anti-hero? Like, everyone's trying to figure that out, right? They're trying to figure out the archetypes, right, on the show. Oh, yeah. And, and the reason why TV today is at its best is because all of those things are constantly evolving. You know what I mean? And oh, I'm thinking of Breaking Bad. Like... You, yeah, that's right. you come the, into the, it at one way. Classic anti-hero. Right? Yeah. And it evolves and at times you're like, oh dude, you're that's don't do that. That's not who I think you are. And yet, faced with decisions, you know, he keeps he keeps yeah, he is the anti-hero and keeps getting slightly compromised and slightly compromised, slightly compromised, which is good TV because that's relatable and human and what happens. When I went in for my pitch. Uh, for my first pitch with my project I just mentioned earlier, they said to me, why, why is the show about like the state that you're in and state politics? And why isn't it about like the president and the white house? And I said this to the producer, I said, the governor of New Jersey has more broad appointment powers than the president of the United States. I said, 
the governor of New Jersey is closer to the people than the president of the United States is. And that's where the action is. So that's where all this real stuff takes place. And once I said that, he got it. And that's why you're seeing what you're seeing happen today. Why the president is saying all the governors have to do this stuff because he knows that the governors on a local level have broader powers than he does as the president to effectuate change within their own states. And that's where the game is. And so where the game is, is where the hustle is. And where the hustle is, is where the stories are. And we talked about that the first time we talked. I just, it's that idea of like, go to where the juice is happening. Right. You don't have to be broad-minded and you're not preaching. You're telling the story and you're going for the juice. Find the juice. That's right. Exactly your point, right? I had somebody outside my window too. It's like, what are the people doing out there? So I want to. I want to have people. If want to um, find out who Jeff is, he's. I've got his LinkedIn address here, so he. You can find him on LinkedIn, um, and also you can go to are you IMDb. I assume we can find. Yeah, you can find me on IMDb. Yep. Yeah, and so IMDb is another great place to look for you, Jeff. This has been so. Oh, Okay, this, you've got at least an audience of one because I get so fired up about this stuff. And I think it's very interesting. And anybody who has time now, because you do, um, can do some of this exploration and you might have the next great show in you. God knows we need some no content. Everybody's done with Netflix now. So it's time to create, create, create. And, and that looks like one industry. And Jeff, I don't know if you heard anything. I know we can't go out and film right this minute, but it seems like an industry that's going to be hungry for content as we pull out of this. Yeah. And looking for different kinds of stories now because we might be a different kind of world when we come out of this as well. Yeah. I mean, the last thing I'll say to you is real quick, because I know we we hit our time, is that everybody's going to want to write scripts about COVID-19. And what I would say to you is don't make all the scripts about COVID-19. Make the scripts about some catastrophic happening impact it had on people's lives use the vehicle i mean use the actual event but don't use it in its complete totality you know make it yeah. different because COVID's the true storytelling story, right? is when you exaggerate no yeah, it's when you exaggerate what happens right exactly that's yeah that's nobody none of us i mean if you need to know go watch parks and rec again last from last night it's streaming now COVID wasn't the story. It was the backdrop. It was the setting. It was the situation, but it was not the story. Right. And that I think is exactly your point, Jeff. Just, just because it's the thing that's out there. No, that's boring. We all are doing this. This is, this is not exciting, but find right. the juice and you, and you find out what's exciting. Like who really got stranded together and what happened next? <laughs> What, how did that story evolve? Jeff, thank you so much. I also, I want to do a quick thank you too to my, um, here we go. Yay, thank you super fans as our last uh, live episode concludes today. I want to thank you guys for coming. Did you, I, I didn't even ask if y'all had any questions, Donna or Marjorie, I don't know if you have any questions, but um, feel, you can feel free to ask Jeff. Otherwise, um, Donna, you have a question. Well, no, I have a comment is, um, my, um, dad's side of the family is Italian and they're from Northern Italy. And I totally get about the Thanksgiving and Christmas. Cause those were the best times when I was a kid listening to all the stories about your great grandparents and great aunts and everything. And that was the best time ever. So I could totally relate. Now I feel so sad that our stories were so small. 
didn't have great stories. We didn't even have a very big family. What am I talking about? We have like a family twig. It's tiny. We don't have very many family members. So that's half of it. Y'all have huge families with tons of people around and, and the same Jeff, you and Donna have that same kind of very comfort and ease about letting people into your lives. So thank you very much. I look forward to talking to everybody next week. We're going to, um, in the meantime, you can join me on Twitter at jcarroll, where um, the naughty language happens, and I might let my opinions fly. So thank you very much, everybody. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for coming today. Thank you.